It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hi there, I'm Chris Stashew. I'm Mike White. And this is Father Malone. And we are the hosts of Dreams for Sale, a Twilight Zone 1985 podcast, and by our accounts, the only Twilight Zone 1985 podcast. So there. Suck it, iTunes. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. we got you now, iTunes. On this episode of Dreams for Sale, we're going to be taking a look at the 22nd episode of the Twilight Zone from 1985. That episode is broken into three parts. Take my life, please! Devil's Alphabet, and The Library. Let's hear it for him, ladies and gentlemen. A big hand for Billy Diamond. A madcap kind of guy who'll make you laugh until it hurts. Late of Hollywood in Las Vegas, now leaving him rolling in the aisles of the Twilight Zone. So this episode aired March 28th, 1986. This first segment, Take My Life, Please, is directed by Gus Draconis. It is written by Gordon Mitchell, and it stars Tim Thomerson and Xander Berkeley. Tim Thomerson plays a comedian who has stolen his routine from another comedian, and because he has done that, he ends up paying the ultimate price. Thomerson, huh? That's what you're going with? Is it Thomerson? Yeah. Yes. Oh, the H is silent? Yeah. Eh, you know what they say? Public education failed me. Jim it's Thompson. Okay. <laughs> uh, hey, you know what? You know what? I don't I don't need this podcast. <laughs> but yes, Tim Oh god. Th- Tim Thomerson, sorry. Mr. Thomerson. I did not mean to offend. I'm sure that that Tim will not mind. <laughs> Tiny Thim? (laughs) Ah, yes, the actor, Tiny Thim Thomerson. Well, I'm never going to live that one down. But what did you guys think of this episode, or the segment? The segment's pretty good, right? I was bummed that Xander Berkeley's only in there for a hot second. I was like, great, Xander Berkeley going toe-to-toe with Tim Thomerson. This is going to be fantastic. Well, that's what it should have been. But they instead do the whole you-are-your-own-worst-enemy thing in the kind of second half of the episode. I liked the episode. I definitely was feeling very strong vibes to that um, first episode of Twilight Zone 2019. Yes, exactly. This whole I'm stuck in purgatory. No, I, I totally agree. I, I, that brought back flashbacks of that horrible uh, Kumail Nanjiani uh, episode of the new Twilight Zone. Um, I also really like this episode a lot. However, it does traffic in something that I hate which is the first portion of it where we're supposed to be seeing Tim Thomerson's character as actually funny 
it's like the least funny thing I've ever seen. And the audience just guffawing away. Like, I, I don't know, that grates on me like nothing else. And it's hilarious that Xander Berkeley's character is complaining that he stole his act. It's like, good, I'm glad you stole my act. This is terrible. It's an act Just that garbage. should be taken out to a field and shot. Yeah. Oh, you're pretending to be a monkey and you eat the peel, but you do sleight of hand with the banana peel. Like, what is the fucking point? Comedic gold. Is it, though? No, it's awful. <laughs> it's It's weird because, like you said, Mike... The idea is that Billy Diamond, Tim's Tim Thomerson's character, is this like world renowned comedian. And like that act that he's doing on that TV show isn't even stand up. Right. Which is a real shame because Thomerson made his bones in the comedy clubs. I mean, that was his thing. A lot of people know him from like the cult movies that he's done over the years Doll Man, Trancers, those kind of things. But. He was a comedian, and that was his thing. And he could do incredible impersonations and all of this stuff. If you go out and, on YouTube and you watch him, I mean, he was out there with, like, you know, during that age of, like, the Robin Williams, the Jerry Seinfelds, like, that group of comedians kind of thing. Very funny guy and given nothing to do in this one. And I can't really blame him for not rewriting it for free. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, and it's it is it is sad if you do know about Tim Thomerson's ability to be funny and to bring a sense of humor to the things that he does because like you said it's it's a waste of him as an actor. It's just a waste of if you're casting him as the main character in this segment, why don't you actually allow him to do the things that he does so well? It's interesting that this was written by Gordon Mitchell because I tend to think of him more as an actor. Um, but it was nice that he was a writer for this and was able to, I mean, once he gets to hell, I was like, okay, this is kind of interesting. And I do like the idea of this person being punished for stealing somebody's act. I mean, I'm really hoping that this happens to like Carlos Mencia at some point. Amy Schumer. <laughs> Amy Schumer. Yes. Dane Cook. Oh man. You're just batting him right out of the park here. Who's the other one? There's one other. There's one other one that's like, oh, Dennis Leary. Oh yeah, he yeah. made his entire career off of somebody else's career. <clears throat> yeah, but that other person's dead, so you can do whatever you want. They're dead. Oh okay. Right? Okay. Sure. The corpse of Bill Hicks is barely even rotting, but Dennis Leary's out there doing his shtick. Ugh. And not as well, might I add, because Bill Hicks had a sense of political savviness about him. Dennis Leary just doesn't. So, yeah, it's my my hope is that this is a reality that that comedians who what what is it? What do they call it? Um, parallel thinking, right? That's the excuse. Isn't that like the excuse yeah. that they use? Yeah, sure. We both had the same thought and then arranged that thought into the same exact wording. Exactly. Yeah, that's how um, uh, uh, Melania writes all of her speeches, right? Yeah. Just look at someone else <laughs> and just do what they said. It's easy to it's easy to play pretend when someone else has already done it for you. I you know, it's it, it is I mean there is that aspect of this episode segment that is kind of so topical because that is something we've seen comedians getting in trouble for recently. And again, they I mean it, as as much as we didn't like it, <clears throat> we talked about the 2019 show, uh that comedian episode, it is so obviously influenced by this. It is so obviously their own take on this episode. And what's funny is this episode does that idea much better because it doesn't go really that far as an idea. 
it kind of just it's there you're trapped in hell the end it's they don't really get into like the bureaucracy of hell like they have in so many other segments this is cut and dry well hey guess what you made him laugh so uh now you're in hell forever it's funny because jumping ahead just uh for a second the library episode is almost like that comedian episode as well i mean because if i remember in the comedian it's a little bit like death note where if he riffs on somebody then they disappear from the world is that right yeah yeah yeah, that's exactly it. It's, oh, I, I make fun of someone, and they disappear because of it. So he's making fun of all of his enemies, but then he starts to run out, and pretty soon he starts making fun of, like, his wife or his mother or these things. I mean, I tried to forget that episode. Well, it's because it's not very you good. You remembered it better than I did. Yeah. I do have to correct something I said. There are two Gordon Mitchells out there. There is one who was an actor in a lot of sword and sandal films and a whole bunch of other things. And then there's Gordon Mitchell, the writer, who was not an actor. And so thank you, Wikipedia, for linking to the wrong Gordon Mitchell and making me look stupid. But <laughs> well, you corrected it, so. Yes. Some, something I really liked in the episode was that once he was dead, although the like everything before hell is terrible in this episode, including the like the fight over the gun. Oh, my God. Uh, but once he's dead, I like that they just went in and said, yeah, you're dead. This is the afterlife. Now let's just deal with it. Like that to me was fantastic. And then the whole sequence of him having to relate all the horrible shit he's done in the world uh, to the laughter of of these hell's denizens, I really enjoyed. So, and uh, as you guys said, like you know, the the other problem with the the most recent Twilight Zone iteration of a comedian is that this is so short; it's just right to the point, which is one of the reasons I liked the Twilight Zone eighty five to begin with. Like it it doesn't stretch it out; it just kind of gets in and gets out, which you know is preferable. Well, and also you have an idea that, like you said, Father Malone, it is a simple idea and the execution is so good that the simplicity can be overlooked. If something is so well, ex- I mean, it's like anything else, right? It's like if you're cooking something, someone makes you a cheeseburger, it's the best cheeseburger you've ever had, but it's a rather simplistic cheeseburger versus a cheeseburger that's got like a million fucking toppings on it. This episode, there is something to be said for the inherent simplicity to the idea and the execution is, it's so well done. I I can't faulted for being 13 minutes it not really having much to say but what it does say it says it so succinctly that i appreciate it's i appreciate how just to the point it is yeah and quite frankly the idea of him stealing jokes like they didn't even need that because it's more of what a horrible human being he is in general uh, that that gets him in trouble so you know they could have just stepped right to the you know the the agent in hell like talking to him yeah, and he's really awful. I mean, like they just keep digging and he just keeps coming up with more horrific things that he's done in his life. Yeah, like stealing the jokes is not the worst thing that this guy's done. He let his mom die of hypothermia. He beat the shit out of a woman because when he, quote, gets high, he becomes unpredictable. Like yes. all of those things are way worse than stealing jokes. Though I guess really? you could make the case that he killed a man who is about to be a father. Yeah. It, that's just one of them. I mean, I'm sure there's a there's a much longer act we weren't privy to that he's <laughs> been rehearsing ever since. If I, I see in my own head, I would like to believe that Tim Thomerson's character dies and Xander Berkeley's character doesn't. Yeah. And so like that is the justice in and of itself. 
Because, like we mentioned, we never see Xander Berkeley's character, so he's either not dead, or he's in heaven. Either of those options are better than being stuck in the, you know, the lizard lounge in hell for the rest of your life. And I'm not yep. incorrect in saying that Thomerson is also that shadowy figure who keeps saying, like, well, what about this? And what about yeah, this? He, okay. he, he is himself in the lounge. At least I believe that's him. Okay. Yeah, I did too, which is another thing I really liked, uh, the, the fact that he's calling himself out for all of his misdeeds. Mm-hmm. What about the woman? Yeah, like that that whole bit of like him calling himself out is what makes this segment work for me. Is that like, oh, even your own internal monologue won't let you give up the fucking ghost of the bullshit you've done in your life. Mm-hmm. Like, and and that you know what? You know what? There there there's a version of this episode where at the end the the Marty character who plays the kind of the the sleazy manager of this, you know, hell lizard lounge is like, "Okay, well you admitted everything, so you're free to go." In this version it's like, "No, fuck you. <laughs> fuck you. This is the punishment that you deserve." And he's his character does deserve it 100%. And he's going to be doing it for an eon. Is that what the punchline yeah. is well because he Ugh. says like oh i'm here forever and he's like it's just two eons we'll get to forever if we get there it's like Fuck uh. a. <laughs> all right so let's move on to the next segment devil's alphabet so this segment was written by robert hunter it is based on a short story by arthur gray called the everlasting club which was originally published in 1910 this screenplay is written by robert hunter it stars Ben Cross, Hywell Bennett, Ethan Phillips, Jim Piddock, a lot of uh, really, I would say, rather well-known English character actors, and they all form a Devil's Alphabet Society, where they have to meet every year without excuse, even if they are dead. Well-known British actors, and then there's Ethan Phillips, a.k.a. Yeah. Neelix. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Don't, let, don't let him and his terrible English accent fool you. He's definitely oh, not British. <laughs> I was I was so confused. What a well-appointed waste of time, this particular episode. Look good, the acting's good, but what the hell is going on here? It reminded me of almost like uh, one of those, uh, and I know I'm going to misspeak, and I'm misspeaking in front of the completely wrong guys to misspeak in front of. It reminded me of one of those like Tales from the Crypt or like an Amicus type, you know, compilation uh, from like the late 60s, early 70s. Yeah, this should be the wraparound segment. Uh, yeah, it also reminded me of uh, Peter Straub's book, Ghost Story, where they yes. have a group of men who get together every you know winter to tell stories, to tell ghost stories to one another. Um, the difference is the Amicus films are awesome, and this one was a pointless waste of time. I was about to say, this almost reminds me of that Amicus film that we watched on Chronicles from the Crypt, shameless self-promotion. Um that that one where the, all those guys meet in that room and they're like telling the story of how they died. It's very similar to that, except in this, nothing happens. Like That's I don't, thing. I don't understand because there there's a part of this where these guys all meet. They're supposed to be Cambridge students. Uh, these guys all look like they're in their fucking forties. First off, uh, which I think sets <laughs> it, it it sets the tone really poorly from the get go because at the beginning you're like they're like oh we've got our lives ahead of us it's like you are old dudes you're in your like late thirties early forties you don't look young you don't look like Cambridge students and so it sets this weird tone because it's almost essentially a lanterns hung on it they're like we're students it's like just because you say you are doesn't mean you are but that's fine. Uh-huh. And then it makes no sense. They all start dying. 
Yeah, that's like, the thing. Unknown, unbeknownst to the uh, unbeknownst to the audience as to why they never tell us why. It seems that maybe the universe is stepping in. If these guys, I thought for sure these guys were like, hey, you know what? We're like, I don't know, skull and bones type of a hole guys, and we are going to be, we're going to be wicked. You know, let's just go out there and be as wicked as we possibly can. Here we are, the meeting of the devil's ad, uh, alphabet, and we're going to go out there and we're going to, like, I don't know, have sex with underage girls and just start doing drugs and just all this horrible shit. Just fuck over our, our fellow man and we can come back here year after year and tell stories of how we humiliated people and ruined lives and all this. And so then the universe starts getting back at them for being a-holes. But that never happens. Like, I like the premise of this story of, like, we create this club, we start to die, we still are obligated to come back to this club because we made a promise and we signed it all in blood. But there's no meat on it. It's just, like, it's just the bones of a story and there's nothing there holding it all together. Yeah, at least if they had had something like, you know, they are out doing wicked deeds uh, yes. the, the, the year through, then... Not only could it be that the universe is trying to get back at them, but, you know, as dead people who are forced to continue to be part of this uh, this cabal, like, couldn't they feel guilty and bad? I don't know. There, there was a million avenues to take, and they took the worst one possible, where these guys don't do anything, and then some force, maybe, is picking them off? And I, 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 what a mess. I don't know. I mean, why not just make it a crossroads story where they essentially all are agreeing to sell their souls to the devil together? I, I mean, something that would have been something. All want, and then they all want out of it, and so it's killing them one by one, starting with A and moving through the letter F. I mean, that's the other thing. Like, why even call it the Devil's Alphabet? Like, that doesn't even it, the way you write this story and the way you adapt this story into making sense is they sell their souls to something and then they each start dying as they try to get out of it. Once they realize what it means, what they've actually done, they actually understand the ramifications of it. And then the final guy gets out and he allows everyone to get out at the same time. It's so fucking stupid. This, uh, this, uh, this segment is just dumb. It's just the definition of stupid because it's a great idea. Completely squandered. Agreed. Here's the example of another episode about the devil, and this time it's a fucking waste. Yeah. Yeah, other than saying devil's alphabet, I'm not sure what bit of Satanism was being (laughs) dipped into here. It's not Dealer's Choice, which is a fucking great episode. With That's a really good Satan episode, yeah. Yeah. Uh It's not, um, what's the other one? The Eye of Newton. It's not that one either. Maybe they were actively working against the good episodes. Yes. (laughs) I think I just found the story that this was based on. And if I'm seeing this right, it's only like basically a page long. So they didn't really bring anything. They had carte blanche. Yeah. Could have done whatever they wanted. This is really scant. Let's stretch that out for 20 minutes. (sighs) I mean, good on them for trying, but it doesn't, it's not much of anything. And it looks set bound. Should point that out. Very set bound. I didn't mind the special effects. I know like we could laugh at them today, but I thought it was okay the way that they had the kind of uh, otherworldly figures. I was like, all right, that works. Yeah, yeah, that worked well. I thought. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
it's I mean, it's not worse than some of the other stretches we've seen in this show. Oh, yeah. But I, I mean, it's it's of the three segments on this episode. I think unless unless the library is the one that everybody really doesn't like, this is the weakest of the three. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with that. Definitely. So let's move on to the final segment, The Library. So it's directed by John Hancock, written by Ann Collins, and it stars one of the stars of American Horror Story, and that's where most folks know her from now, unfortunately, because that show is garbage. Francis Conroy plays a writer who takes a job at a private library. It turns out, however, that it is no normal library. It is a library with books containing people's lives. She will always be the mom from Six Feet Under for me, so. Yeah, me too. She'll always be that maid from the first season of American Horror Story to me because I fucking hate myself. That really super hot young maid? Well, technically the same character, yes. Oh, okay. And then Uta Hagen, who I've been reading about a lot lately, who was one of the leading uh, acting coaches uh, for years and years and taught classes about how to, to act. And I didn't even recognize Lori Petty in this. Because of that gigantic uh, Adrian Barbeau type do. Yes, my God, that was huge. I I I was watching it with with, with my girl, and I was just like, "Is that a wig?" She's like, "No, I think that's her real hair." I'm like, "Wow, <laughs> far far from Point Break." Yeah, Point Break, and from Tank Girl as well. And then Joe Santos, always great to see him. I just was talking about uh, the friends of Eddie Coyle. He's a, a one of many great character actors in there, but I mostly know him from uh, the Rockford Files. But we're just talking about the cast and haven't even talked about the actual show yet. Um, well, that's probably because it's it's very trope-heavy. Super trope-heavy. It is I, like tropey. It is tropey to a fault. I was so reminded of Death Note with this, but it was just that, hey, if you try to make somebody's life better, you're going to fuck something else up. And it's like, okay, we've learned this lesson before, Twilight Zone. Thank you. I was just really reminded of A Sound of Thunder, the great film featuring Ben Kingsley, where if you go and change the past, it affects the future. The great film? Yes. <laughs> the- yeah, that's, that's one of my favorites. <laughs> uh, a true American cinema classic. <laughs> but no, I mean, it's it, they, they all of those things traffic in the same notion that yes. someone sees a fault in either their history or their timeline, and they are then given the ability to change it, and they always change it for the worse, and the stories that have some sort of, um, you know, a little bit of heart to them normally let the character out of it, especially if the character is somewhat sympathetic. But if you're not a sympathetic character, you're either trapped in the past or you're trapped in a future of your own making that is horrifying. This episode is one of the ones where the main character is rather sympathetic. And so therefore she's given a quote unquote happy. If not, this was a total waste of our time ending. Oof, yeah. I mean, this episode or this segment rather, it's sort of uh, just <laughs> much like the comedians not saying anything funny, but everyone's laughing. This is another trope that drives me nuts where you change one thing or you change something and then everything is basically the same except a little bit different. Like, you know, if you change someone's life fundamentally, for instance, uh, as you mentioned, Joe Santos becomes a priest. Why is he living in an apartment building? Wouldn't wouldn't he be at the rectory? I mean, yeah. 
It's little things like that, like, oh, okay, I'm going to make her uh, very successful now. So she's a lawyer, but she still lives with you in this shitty apartment. Like, your entire destiny has been changed, and nothing has really changed. Just a little thing to, you know, gum up the works a little. Well, it's like, remember, that, I- remember that film White Man's Burden with uh, with John Travolta, where yep. it's like, okay, you know what, now, now uh, African-American people are in charge, and white people are the minority. And it's like, and that's as far as they got as thinking that, at thinking that through. That's uh, that's that fucking horrible movie with the the orcs and Will Smith, uh, Bright, where it's like this whole world runs on magic, but it's the exact same world that we live in, even to the point of of him making a Shrek joke. I'm like, you have actual ogres in this world, and you're making a Shrek joke. That means that yeah. Shrek exists in this universe. Yeah. Well, and they always, they never think about when they introduce something like that, what that means. They just want to mention it. And it's like, that's lazy. And this episode is fucking lazy because it's, yeah, oh, I'm just going to change this. But yet they're still there. And I mean, they go as far as to hang a lantern on it in the fucking episode, which is like, why didn't I just put us somewhere nicer to live to begin with? Like, why didn't you? Why didn't you just change everything? Yeah, why everything? didn't you? Well, and that's the thing. It's the character of Ellen played by Frances Conroy, because she doesn't immediately go to that level, it's meant to make her sympathetic. And like, it does its job because again, she I would say she's a rather sympathetic character. She's not doing any of this with malice. I mean, she never writes anyone. She, I mean, she, she even writes Joe Santos's character who is a piece of shit to her. Uh, she writes him as a priest. She could have wrote him as dead. I mean, she could have just been like, he's dead now. And said, she's like, nah, he's a priest. Did you recognize? Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, no, no. Go ahead. Chris, did you recognize, uh, the woman that lives down the hallway? Um, uh, Candy Azara. She was in the layoff episode of, uh, Barney Miller. Oh yeah. Yeah. She's got one, like I was talking about in that, she's got that great distinctive voice. I didn't realize that her, uh, she comes back like two more times in Barney Miller. Well, she's not coming back in this. No, definitely not. Thank, thank and, God. And what a, what, a, what a character. I mean, she just comes over to cry? What, are you kidding yeah. me? That's it. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Now I got to fix her problem because she's so sad. All the fucking time. I don't know. This one... Uh, you know, it, it's better than Devil's Alphabet, but not by much. Both of these segments just make Take My Life, Please look more and more glowing in my estimation. <laughs> this segment is almost the antithesis of Take My Life, Please, right? In that one, you have a character who's metered out punishment and he has to serve it. In this one, the character doesn't learn anything. I and mean, that's Mm-mm. it's like a fucking shame. Like what Francis Conroy learns that there no, are no consequences to your actions. Like, I, I don't understand the ending of this segment because it doesn't make any sense. I mean, it all goes back to zero, right? Yeah. And, and right, the library but they, uh, disappears. But, like, why? <laughs> like, now some dude lives there. No, right. th- yeah, there, there is no why to it. It's just, but it like, is. And, like, I, I don't, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but, like, between the three of us, is asking why something happens a problem with this show sometimes. Like I know that you don't, and I know that this is a big thing we've kind of always talked about, maybe not on this podcast, but in general, like there's nothing wrong with ambiguity in film or TV, but there is a problem with ambiguity when it doesn't exist because you just didn't think it was important enough to tell us like leaving something vague to the audience for them to interpret it the way they want is one thing, but with a glaring hole, like in this episode where it's like, Oh, and you've angered who? 
them? Right, the I don't aliens? I don't need to she know. She says humanity at one point. So is she a fucking alien mm. too? Yeah. Like I don't mind in Beetlejuice not knowing how the uh, uh the hereafter bureaucracy works. That cuz that's one little segment of that entire film. But when the entire thing is predicated on this idea and you don't give us any more than you just change words in a book and then bad things happen, like, you know, I, we need more than that in this case. So I think yeah. it's really a case by case basis as far as like what they need to tell and what they don't. In this case, you're right. They just thought the premise was so good that we weren't going to be asking these questions. And when you have all of a sudden the library starts shaking and the character is going, you have to leave. The The world is changing. It's like, wh- what? And then she opens the door and the library is gone. Like, uh, sure. Okay. Like, that's essentially what we're being told. Like, just accept it and move on. It's a time quake. <laughs> sure. Jeez. Sure. Why not? We'll just put time in front of things and that'll make it better. It's just, it's lazy. I mean, again, it's not a bad segment. It's just lazy. And the internal logic of the episode Either it doesn't have any or the internal logic it claims to play by, it just doesn't. I read a quote, like, Alan Brennert, the the story editor on the show, said, like, of this particular episode that Take My Life, Please never should have made it past the script stage. And I'm like, the other segments are so much worse. What are you talking about? Right. Jeez. What? Why would you even think that? Yeah, exactly. Like of watching the watching the finalized episode, you're like, yeah, that first one sucked. <laughs> <laughs> well, it sounds like to me, he's like, we need more for that episode segment. It's like, no, you don't. This episode segment probably could have had some of its time taken away. Maybe give it to Devil's Alphabet. Maybe let Devil's Alphabet breathe a little bit more. This episode, it's the same thing four times in a row. Yeah. She does something, and there's something different. And she does something, and there's something different. Repeat that two more times, and you have this segment. Right, right. Just, uh, I don't know. And we've seen Not worse than Devil's Alphabet. Right. It's just a shame, because we've seen this same thing done before, and we've seen it done better. I mean, it's really just the monkey's paw, right? I mean... Yeah, 100%. I mean, it's, again, it's just this this tropey idea of you've been given some sort of device whatever that device is to change your present or past or future. And you always fuck it up. It's lazy. It's just fucking lazy. And you know, how many more of these stories do we need to see for them to realize it's lazy? I'm going to guess at least one more. <laughs> Probably more than that. Unfortunately. At least one more this season. Most likely. <laughs> Don't meddle with fate. Okay. We got that. Thank you. Twilight Zone. No, really? I mean it this time. Yeah. Right. So on the next episode of Dreams for Sale, we're going to be taking a look at episode 23 of The Twilight Zone. We're one episode away from the finale of the first season of the show. Episode 23 is broken into two parts, Shadow Play and Grace Note. Until then, where can people find you, Father Malone? You can check me out at fathermalone.com. I've got a podcast up there called Dark Destinations. It's a travelogue to fictional towns. You can also hear me over on Chronicles from the Crypt. That's the podcast Chris and I do about the television series Tales from the Crypt. What about you, Mike White? You can find me over at The Projection Booth, which is available at projectionboothpodcast.com. As for me, you can find me on Twitter at casualty underscore Chris. That's where I post all the podcasts that I work on, and I work on a fair amount with these two guys. So that's where you can go to find those. You can find this podcast online at twilightzone85.com. All the previous episodes are there if you want to check those out. And big thanks, as always, to Roxy Drive and Neutron Dreams for the intro and outro for Dreams for Sale. And we'll catch you on the next episode. (laughs) 
It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.